Well, Father, um, we do thank you so much for just the privilege that we have uh, to be educated in your word, uh, to know your truth, uh, to have a sound doctrine. Lord, um, we know that our whole lives are informed by what we believe and what we think in our mind. And so, Lord, I'm grateful that, um, that we can come here and learn from one another and most of all that we can learn from your word and your truth. Thank you for all of the subjects that we've covered thus far in our Sunday school. Um, I just feel very enriched by every single one of them. I pray that today you would bless your people and um, bless us, Lord, as we look at your word now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, um, today uh, I get a little chance here to teach us, um, as uh, Pastor Chris is going to be teaching, uh, 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 preaching today. So take advantage of that and uh, give him a, a little break from Acts. And uh, today I want to look at a, a doctrine that's very, very uh, central and um, that really critical doctrine to all of theology. And I thought I wanted to do this last time. I have to take that book in there. You can wrestle with that if you like. Uh, thank you. I was going to do this last time, but the gospel won out. So it was either the gospel or teach on union with Christ. So that's what we're looking at today. Union. Is that how you spell it? Is that onion? Union. <laughs> union with Christ. Okay. That's, that's the doctrine that we're looking at. That's not a really good view. It's not very thick. What is union with Christ? When we say union with Christ, what do we mean? Anyone? Anyone? Yes, sir? Okay, so joining together as one. Okay, good. That's great. Yeah. Anybody else? Any, anything else come to mind when you hear the, 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 the doctrine of union with Christ? Salvation. Salvation? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Anybody else? Anything else? Being like him. Being like him? Wow. Desires and thoughts from him. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, right there we're already hitting, you know, different aspects of the doctrine of union with Christ and when you say being like him, that was I'm I'm really glad you said you said that, because union with Christ um, really captures um, our relationship to Christ, like you're saying, um, our the fact that we're with him, okay, the fact that it's part of our salvation, but it extends further than that even to our sanctification. So when you say we're like him, that's actually one of the prepositions I have in here, uh, in uh, in with and like. These are all prepositions that you're going to find in the Bible in our relationship to Christ. So we are in Christ and this is um, so so we are in Christ okay but there's another construction right in the, in the Bible Christ in us okay and that's kind of interchangeable and the prepositional phrase that we're looking here in the Greek is the word end you gotten there, Jason? Yes. <laughs> okay. The preposition "n," which, depending on what case it's with, can be translated either uh, in, with, uh, among. It just depends how or, or what the relationship <laughs> is uh, in the grammar. But uh, this is this is what the, this is what God gave us to understand how we we go we go together with Christ. It's really phenomenal. But uh, the doctrine of union with Christ. Let me, can I read a quote for us? This is John Murray. Um, I actually brought, oh boy, I didn't bring any of my show and tell. It's in my case in there. I brought his book. I want to show it to you. 
John Murray has written a book called Redemption, Accomplished, and Applied. How many, has anybody read it? Nobody read it? I know there's a couple of people. You read it? No? Uh, there's a couple of people in this church I know that have read it. Um, maybe I'll show it from the pulpit as a kind of a show-and-tell thing. I, I think that book should be read by every Christian at least once a year, or at least every other year. Maybe that's an overstatement, but you know what I mean. It's a book that you read over and over and over. <coughs> John Piper called this book Iron to the Bones of the Soul. And uh, that's what it is. This is what John Murray... John Murray was the professor at Westminster for 40 years, or at least 40 years, um, uh, in, in, in the 20th century. And um, uh, he was a prolific uh, theologian. And this is what he said. Union with Christ is, central, is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. It's the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. Um, and hopefully we're going to explore a little bit of this. R.C. Sproul said this. He said, the, uniors, uh, excuse me, the union of believers is grounded in the mystical union of Christ and his church. And so he threw out the word mystical. When he says mystical union with Christ, what does he mean? Come on in, everybody. Get comfortable. Thank you. I actually brought a couple books in here for you guys to see. Um, this is the book I was telling you about, Redemption, Accomplished, and Applied by John Murray. Okay, This is a real old version. I mean, this thing's falling apart. Uh, they just put out, I think, a second edition of this. Please get that. Also, um, just for the whole doctrine of soteriology, salvation, uh, Anthony Hokema. How many people have heard of Anthony Hokema? Okay, Anthony Hokema. Uh, was a professor. He's also gone to be with the Lord. These guys, they're all, you know, they're all in a better place than we are, right? They're all with the Lord already. Uh, but Anthony Hokema was a professor of theology at Calvin Theological Seminary. He actually took over for Louis Burkhoff. How many of you heard of Louis Burkhoff? He took over for Burkhoff after Burkhoff passed away. And uh, Anthony Hokema was al has always been hailed as, as, as just one of the best teachers. Like, his ability to teach is just prolific. Anyway, this book on the doctrine of salvation, and, and he has a chapter in here on union with Christ, is just, it's just outstanding. I quoted John Murray. Now I'm quoting R.C. Sproul. R.C. Sproul uses this word, mystical union with Christ. When he says mystical, what does he mean? Yes, sir. I think he's referring to it as a, it's a mystery, an intimate mystery, as like a marriage. <laughs> Anybody else? <clears throat> Should have had you come up here and teach today. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, theologians have used this word, and it doesn't mean anything like mysticism. Okay, mysticism being, you know, kind of an aberrant spirituality. When they when they use the word mystical, that's right. It, it's it's springing from mysterion in the Greek, which is mystery. Okay, uh, turn with me. Let's see, maybe a couple places. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter five. Ephesians chapter 5 to see this, okay? <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 5, you know what this uh, the section here, beginning in verse 22 and going all the way down uh, to verse 33, you know what this is all about. This is talking about uh, the marriage roles, right? And as the culmination, we know this verse. In verse 32, the culmination of this verse is this. He says, this mystery is great. And um, 
He says, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. And so there he's saying that the analogy of marriage is actually typifying a mystery. Okay? And that mystery is the mystery of the union of church and Christ. You see that? And that's where this whole idea of mystical union comes from. Maybe another, another passage, Colossians. Turn to Colossians chapter 1. At any time, please feel free to ask a question or make a comment. Um, because I really, Sunday school, you know, I try to tell anybody teaching Sunday school, Sunday school should not be another sermon. I could easily do that. So, you know, uh, if I left to my own devices, you know, I'll be up here preaching before long, you know. But if you guys uh, feel free to help me at any time. Colossians chapter 1, verses 26 to 27. Okay. 26 to 27, says the mystery, uh, that's no good. Verse 25, back up to context. He says, of this church, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. That is the mystery which has been hidden from ages past and uh, excuse, um, from the past ages and generations that's the King James kicking in, sorry. But has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of his mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you. So there's one of our prepositional phrases. Christ in you. Christ is in you in a, in a, in a spiritual way. And so another aspect of our union with Christ is this idea of a spiritual union spiritual union right and uh, uh, one of the one of the blessings of what Jesus did when he left planet earth right is uh, as the disciples stood there very perplexed not knowing what's going to happen and Jesus is basically saying look it is to your advantage that I go away right and at the moment it's like this is a nightmare that you're going away to our advantage how because if he didn't go away, then what could not happen? The then the Holy Spirit, the promise of the Spirit could not come, right? And so now, on the, basi on the basis of the ministry of the Spirit, <coughs> the believers, all of the believers, all over the world, all the millions of believers everywhere, experience the same fellowship with Jesus that only existed in, 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 a, a per, in a personal way in a very small pocket of believers. So that fellowship has now been extended to every single one of us through union with Christ and through a mystical and spiritual union with him. It's really remarkable. Uh, would that we would um, uh, walk away from, from here uh, just enjoying our communion with God more. Okay, and uh, that we would go home and in our lives and in our in our families and in our homes, in our devotions, in our minds, we would think about our communion with Christ more. OK, uh, now turn with me. Let's go to the Bible. Turn with me to John 17 just to really explore. Jesus teaches union with Christ. <laughs> How Christ centered is Christ. Very Christ centered. <laughs> He teaches union with Christ. John chapter 17. And uh, of course, you know what this chapter is all about. 
This is uh, Jesus in his high priestly prayer, getting ready to go back to the Father. So what I want to point out to us is just some of the elements that are found in this text that, that sort of reveal different aspects of our union with Christ, okay? Um, who would want to read for us? Somebody that's not shy and not too quiet. Uh, John 17, 22 to 26. Anyone? Yes, sir. The glory which you gave, given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you have given me. Mm-hmm. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you have sent me. Mm-hmm. And I have made your name known to them, and will make it known, so that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. That's right. Uh, think about that, huh? Jesus is praying for us. And uh, what he prays is that we would have a full understanding, a full experience of union with himself. And where does the language of union with Christ for Jesus, where does this come from? What is the background? What is, um, what's going on here? Is this all just, he's just making all this up? I believe that these words have carefully exegeted. They yield for us such rich theological truths, okay, For example, let me just sort of point out the phrases that he uses. He says, first, he points out the Christ-centered nature of union with Christ. He says, I in them. So in union with Christ, we experience the true historical person, Jesus Christ. That's who we're in fellowship with. We're not with a thought about Christ. We are not simply with an idea. We're not just simply in our soul's you know, focusing on some abstraction. It's a real person that we're fellowshipping with. I in them. Okay? It's also ecclesiastical. Who does, he di- who does he dwell in? Only some really, really smart theologians in the church? I in them. All of them. Corporately. Plurally. All of them. And I think this definitely extends. By the way, so you know I'm not uh, eisegeting. Okay, uh, how can I extend this beyond the apostles? Uh, not just to the apostles, but even beyond the apostles. How am I extending this beyond them? Verse twenty: I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who will believe in me through their word. That's you and me. Yeah. So this applies to all of us. Uh, also. Again, the the redemptive effects of this. And here I'm thinking mainly that union with Christ is also rooted in the plan of redemption. How do I know? Look at the words. He says, uh, I and them, and then he says, "I um, I have given to them. You see that? Uh, Where am I at here? Uh, the glory which you have given to me, I have given it to them. Uh, this, is all, this is just 
pointing out the sovereign grace of God, uh, Christ opening up our hearts, regenerating us, giving us grace, giving us union with Christ, giving us salvation, giving us sanctification. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. In Christ we have what? Redemption, sanctification, righteousness, wisdom, power of God. In Christ, all in Christ. Okay. Also, it is Trinitarian. I and them and you in me. Uh, when two members of the Trinity are mentioned, Theologians like to call that a binatarian passage. Two people, two members of the Godhead speaking there. But it is Trinitarian because uh, uh, the whole unit of thought is chapter 14 all the way to chapter 17. Well, the Spirit has already been mentioned as coming and indwelling His people. So this is a Trinitarian union with Christ results in a Trinitarian experience. Okay. Uh, the next thing is that it is rooted in covenantal uh, love, and I use the word covenantal not just because it's trendy, okay, not just because I'm trying to sound smart, but because this language right here, be that they may be with me where I am, okay, that language doesn't pop out of the sky, it is rooted in Old Testament covenant theology, okay, uh, for example. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 34. Somebody like to read that for me? <coughs> Jeremiah 31, 34. And then I want somebody to read Revelation 21, 3. Uh, Chris, maybe you can read Revelation. Sorry, I better say what Chris. I had like five heads go up. You know? <laughs> Chris Matthews, maybe you can read Revelation 21, 3. And Chris Shaw, maybe you can read Jeremiah uh, 31, 34. Again, just pointing out that this language of being with him, with him, uh, is rooted in something. Okay, It's not just getting emotional about God. You know, uh, Jesus is, is close to you. you know? get, get close to Jesus. I talked to a pastor once who told me, you know, this young brother in the church, he's not close to Jesus right now. Well, we mean a lot more than that when we're talking about, when Jesus is talking about being with him. Okay, You got that one, uh, Chris Shaw? 3134. Uh, 3134, yes, sir. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. No, that's not the one. I misled you, brother. Is it the, ne is it the next? I know you like it. I like it more when I get the right verse. Uh, I think it, it goes on from there. Uh, Let's see here. 33, I'm sorry. I'll read this. I'll put my law within their hearts, uh, and on their heart I will write it. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Um, so there, uh, God just covenant together to be our God. Okay, but, but then moving on from that. Okay, this is a prophecy of the new covenant. Moving on from that for Revelation. Go ahead, Chris. Revelation 21. Yes, Chris M. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. So for God, when he made covenant promises to his people, what was the apex? What's the whole thing about? Inheriting the land, rest from your enemies, right? Um, having a multitude of people? No. You don't reach the zenith of the covenant 
until God is in your midst. <laughs> and then once God is in your midst, then the glory of the Lord will cover the world like the water covers the sea. Then you know the consummation has come. So when we are there in Revelation, okay, and, and God is fully, consummately in our midst, then all of his covenant promises will have come to pass and we will be in the midst of that. So when Jesus is saying, I will be with them, they will be with me where I am. That means we get Jesus' special presence um, through union with Christ. We get to partake of Jesus in a way that the world simply does not. We are his covenant people. He calls us out. And then to even go further, it's all based on love and it's all for the purpose of love. Look at the, look at the language again there in uh, in uh, chapter 17 of John. He says, I love them even as you loved me. So there is a divine analogy here between the love between father and son and the love that exists now between Christ and his church. Just as the father loved the son, so the son loves the church. Okay? Now, can I point something out here? There's two words. Um, did somebody give me a eraser? Or did I drop it or... You got Thank you. <laughs> uh, there's two words here that are very important, okay, guys, that, that um, are very important when we're studying union with Christ, and that is the word analogy and identity. Why? Yeah, that says identity. <laughs> so, analogy and identity. So Jesus is telling us there is an analogy between the love that the Trinity experiences, okay? But that is not identity. Meaning, we do not now become identified as part of the Trinity. Our identity, or the, the identity of God is not shared with us, okay? We don't get absorbed into the Trinity. Some mystical cults use passages like this to substantiate just that thing. And it really, at the end, it just... What it results is it's kind of like a pantheistic sort of, you know, uh, worldview. But no, it's analogy versus identity. We do not become absorbed into the divine, okay? Not in that way. We don't become part of the Godhead. So we have to stop short of that, okay? But there is a divine analogy. In the same way that the Father loves the Son, we experience that same love uh, as Christ loves us. I saw a hand earlier. Yes, sir. Yeah. That's what it seemed like to me. Well, sure, we're being, that's right, we're being part of, uh, we're being, in a sense, prepared for fellowship, you know? Yeah. That's right. First Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9 says, you were called for the purpose of what? Fellowship with Jesus Christ. So, yes, your divine calling, okay, that, just, that doesn't mean vocation. That means your election, literally, is for what purpose? So that you might come into fellowship with Jesus Christ. So I want to look at two aspects, therefore, going beyond this. The love, uh, it's all rooted and grounded in love, but I better move along. Um, and look at two aspects of union with Christ. There is the eternal, okay? Eternal and the temporal. Temporal, okay? 
temporal. Uh, first, the eternal. Where does union with Christ begin? Okay. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Okay. Uh, you know, a doctrine like union with Christ at the end of the day just makes you feel how much you're indebted to Christ. <laughs> it just really does. Because you can start coming to see that everything is about God associating you with Jesus Christ. There's nothing more important than that, being identified with him. Okay? But first, the eternal aspect, beginning in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. Let's, oh, verse 3. Let's begin in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. That's our key phrase, in Christ. Okay, this is the Greek is something like this. Okay, in Christos, you know that's what they wrote in Christ. This phrase then becomes foundational to everything in salvation. Okay, uh, in Christ, in Christ. Okay, so in Him, He chose. It says, it says, in, uh, just as He chose us. Look at this phrase, in Him. See, these words are loaded with meaning. In Him. He chose us in Him. So we were not in Him in any physical sense. You weren't tucked away in Christ's cells. You're in Him, again, in a spiritual and in a mystical way. And in eternity, in in uh, in this eternal aspect... We are in Christ in some way that God thought of us as being in Christ. So he says, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Now, where were you at that time? Were you going out to Starbucks or, you know, right? Were you making, you know, were you going to church that Sunday or something? You weren't around. (laughs) We were just not around before the foundation of the world. But we're already being talked about. So it says that he chose us, eclectos, uh, elected us, literally, in him before the foundation of the world. And the word uh, uh, katabalon, I think it is, literally means to throw down the building blocks of life. Before God threw down the building blocks of life, he chose us in Christ. That's amazing. Then it says, um, then it says uh, that we would that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the kind intention of His will. And then this ends the section to the praise of the glory of His grace. That's kind of that phrase is the interval in verses three. 14 because he repeats it three times the work of the father is to choose the work of the son is to redeem the work of the spirit is to seal right and here we are being told that in the eternal recesses of God's mind he already thought of us in union with Christ we were already being thought of in the mind of God as having some sort of special relationship with him isn't that amazing so everything God decided to do in the world, in Christ, he did it 
all the while associating us with his son. This is, this is just amazing. It's, uh, John Murray points out in his book, uh, he points out several times in his book here that, um, that, that with you, in the doctrine of union with Christ, uh, th- th- there comes a point, uh, let me read him because I just remember reading this, but he says, there comes a point that in a real way it surpasses our power to analyze it goes beyond our reach <laughs> to even comprehend and to grasp, right? And um, therefore, every good thing, according to Ephesians, comes to you because of union with Christ. That's why it comes to you. That's why Romans chapter 8, verses 28 to, 20, uh, to 30, right, uh, where it talks about uh, all things work together for those that, you know, love God are called according to his purpose, you know, and then it says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, and they, you know, on and on and on and on. All of that is because of your union with Christ. No other way. There's no other way. Any questions, comments, or statements? No? Uh, John Murray says, union with Christ has its source in the election of God the Father before the foundation of the world and has its fruition in the glorification of the sons of God. The perspective of God's people is not narrow. It is broad and long. It is not confined to time and space, but it has its expanse into eternity. That's right. And uh, so, uh, so when people speak of our eternal union with Christ, <coughs> some have categorized that as conceptual union. Uh, the reason they do things like that is to avoid things like eternal justification. Everybody know what I'm talking about? In other words, we don't ever want to say, because of union with Christ, we have always been justified before God. So we are eternally sanctified, eternally justified. We are eternally... No, no, no. Justification takes place in time and space upon faith. Okay? Prior to that, Paul says we were dead and trespasses. We were enemies of God. Okay. So we go from eternity into time. So now the temporal aspects. And in the temporal aspects of Christ and his eternal purposes. Um, oh, you know what? Stop. Hold on one second. I got a little bit of time. Before we go to time, let's stay in eternity for a little bit. Okay. Uh, turn with me uh, to Ephesians chapter 3. There's two verses that I really want to point out here. Ephesians chapter 3 and Hebrews chapter 13. Okay, just get ready for that. Okay, because again, just pointing out that God's plan to save his people, not only does it extend into eternity, but again, it's not just a nebulous idea. It actually is concrete covenant love. That's, what, that's the way I would like to phrase it. All of God's plans are covenantal in nature. I would argue that. That everything that God does is because he has covenanted himself to do it. Okay? I think John 17, when Jesus says, I have done the work that you gave me to do. A, what, when did the Father give it to him to do it? At his incarnation? Certainly not. Because he's asking to return to pre-existent glory. Right? And so... <clears throat> So no, I think the Father and the Son got together and they had a little agreement in the Godhead, okay? They agreed, I would say they covenanted together 
in what's known, some theologians call the covenant of redemption. They got together and they, co- they agreed together to execute redemption, to execute salvation, to do it, not just to think about it, not just to ponder it. You know, the ancient Greek gods, they would, they would ponder things. <laughs> you know, they would think, you know. You, you hear Plato and some of these guys, they talk about the gods thinking almost out loud to themselves, you know. Well, God did more than just think to himself. He made a plan, and then he executed the plan. Just amazing. Any questions on that? Because I know that's kind of heavy treading there. Okay. You sure? No comments? No insights? No objections? Yes, sir. I got one. I was just going to see if you might elaborate on, I guess, maybe the beginning order of election in terms of someone being elected to carrying it out in action versus the other way around. Huh. I might need you to repeat that for <laughs> Being elected first to carry out the action of being holy and blameless. Rather, I think some people think the action itself of being holy and blameless, you carry that out and then you're elected. I see. Whereas here it says you're elected to carry out the action. That's right. Very good. Uh, that's funny because just this week at UNT, I had a conversation with a young man who was trying to explain to me that he's struggling with the sovereignty of God in these things. And then he said... You know, he mentioned foreknowledge. It's all based on God's foreknowledge. I said, well, why don't you define what does foreknowledge mean? It says, well, it just means God knows ahead of time. You know, like foreknow. Of course, that's not what foreknowledge in the Bible means. Uh, if that's what foreknowledge means, then the devil is predestined to eternal life. <laughs> because it says, those whom he foreknew. Right? So he knows everything ahead of time. I don't know anybody that God does not foreknow in that way. Do you? It's part of God's omniscience, right? So the author of Romans, Paul, is not saying he chose those who he knew would come into existence ahead of time or those who would choose him ahead of time as if God is responding. No. The word foreknowledge comes from the Hebrew word group, yada, which is to know someone in a covenant relationship, in an intimate relationship. So God decided to have an intimate relationship with someone. That's what God is saying there. Those whom he foreknew means those that God decided to place his love upon, covenantally. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Yada, which means I had, uh, uh, I had, uh, I had decided to come into an intimate knowledge of or else that doesn't mean anything, right? Or else, hey, he knows everybody like that. There's nothing special about that, Jeremiah. But no, it's God's covenant love. He sets his love upon us. And then, so yes, he, he chooses us not on the basis of anything that we've done, to whether or not we've been holy or not, uh, which is just amazing, which just shows it's all rooted and grounded in his grace. It's all rooted and grounded. Is everybody at Ephesians 3? Ephesians 3, uh, 11 uh, through 12. Jason, did that answer your question, or did you want to add to that? No, I was just I was, okay. I was hoping you would make that a little bit clearer. Okay, okay. Uh, but uh, Ephesians three eleven says, This was in accordance, talking about the manifestation of his mystery, with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see that? God had, you could literally translate, an eternal plan. An eternal purpose, an eternal decree, theologians have said. Okay, This is not a sloppy God. 
He's not just figuring things out as it goes along, right? Oh, no, look what's happening. They're arresting my son. <laughs> what am I going to do? They got him up on a cross. Oh, no. I better figure out plan B here. It's all part of the plan, folks. It is all part of the plan. Maybe one more text. I'm getting my, I always get in trouble. You know what? See, that's why I don't want to preach, because then that leads me to this verse. And that's not in my notes, but I have to go there to show you this, you know? Acts chapter 4, really quick, and I'll get to you, Chris. Oh, go ahead. Acts chapter 4, everyone, please. Chris. What about Christ's will of not wanting to go to the cross and then surrendering to the will of the Father who wants to go to the cross? Let's close in prayer. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, think about that, huh? So there you see the perfect balance of what they call the theanthropic man. There's the hypostatic union right there in the greatest mystery of all, you know. Uh, there is Christ's humanity and his divine nature colliding, if you would, or, or coexisting, if you would. You know, As a man, he doesn't want to bear the brunt of the cross and the sorrow and the pain and the shame and the guilt, you know, all of that. He doesn't want to. But it's almost like his divine, his divine nature prohibits that he would ever do anything that would violate the, the law of God. So he would never disobey. So he would always finally and ultimately yield. But it's like in his divine nature, he's saying, yeah, if there is any other way, but not my will, your will. So, yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Sorry. Yes, ma'am. Back to, um, of course, I don't know which verse that's in, but where it talks about how the Lord um, was tempted the way we were, but he was perfect. Without sin. So we have to go back to when he was asking, you know, if this cup can pass, you know, Such a that Some even have said, you know, some theologians have even said that Jesus' temptation was even more magnified in that he never once gave in to sin. So, yeah. you know what I mean? It was, um, there was a lot at stake there, you know. But it's a, it's a, there's a tension, you know. John Calvin says, you know, the prophecy in the Old Testament is that not a bone on Christ's body would be broken, but God did not give him unbreakable bones. <laughs> but yet the prophecy and the sovereignty of God prohibits the law, the, the will of God from being violated, the decreed will of God. Yes. Um, that kind of shows that God is basically showing us through His Word, as believers and believers, that there is no other way. That's right. There is. That's it. Mm-hmm. Even Christ Himself was kind of like, you know, is there another? You know. Yeah. No, there is not. This is it. Well, and just to point it back to uh, Acts chapter four, I had all y'all turn there, so I might as well read it. But in Acts twelve, you know, just to show that this is all part of the plan. After saying that the kings of the earth are gathered against Christ, verse 27, truly in this city they were gathered together your holy, against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod, Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. So there, you know, this is what theologians call the two wills of God. There's a will of command and a will of decree. On the one hand, it is not the will of God that you mistreat the Son of God. It is not God's will that you slap the Son of God in the face. However, at a higher degree, it is the will of God that these things be so. It's just a really, you know, 
it's 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 a high tension there, but uh, but that is what Christ has revealed. So this is all part of God's eternal purpose, everything that He worked out in Christ Jesus, and then Hebrews chapter uh, thirteen. I told you I'd go there real quick, but in Hebrews chapter twelve or, or thirteen, verse twenty, Hebrews twelve twenty, there we have another aspect of this eternal plan of God. And here it says, May the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord. There, the eternal covenant. Right? Where did that come from? The eternal covenant. Uh, you're not going to find that word anywhere else in the New Testament. Uh, eternal covenant. You're not going to find that anywhere else in the New Testament. Just right there. Is that is that where it comes from? Hebrews 13? Or does it come from somewhere else? Anyone? Chris, you're smiling. I don't know if you're... Well, I cheated and used the reference. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you used the cross-reference, yeah, huh? Exactly. Cheater. What do you think? Where does that concept come from? The eternal covenant of God. Where does that come from? I would suggest to you that it comes directly from what we read earlier in Jeremiah chapter 31. It also comes from Isaiah 54 and Ezekiel 37, where God is said, uh, the prophets are saying that God is going to make an everlasting covenant. Hebrews means Ezekiel fulfilled. That's what it means. It means everything that the, the new covenant in Jeremiah 31 was pointing to is finished. It, was, it is complete in Christ. Uh, so far as redeeming us through his blood is concerned, and what he has established is an eternal covenant. Um, and I think that eternal covenant, I think it's uh, obviously rooted in the eternal counsel of God. Um, so, with that idea, then, um, of the eternal aspect of our union with Christ. This is, this is what God has done from all eternity. He thought about us in union with Christ. We'll spend the rest of our time looking at time and space when we are actually united to Christ. And we are united to Christ both in his life and his death, right? And in his resurrection. We are united to him in his life. That means that we are associated with Christ on the basis of his obedience and his merit and his righteousness, we have an association with that. We're united to his life because our lives are imperfect. So we have to be united to his perfect life, his perfect obedience, his perfect righteousness, because we have no righteousness of our own. And that's the only way that we are going to be saved. That's the only way that we're going to be justified. We're also united to him in his death and in our union with him through his death, we die to sin. Romans 6 6. He says, The old self was crucified. And then uh, I erased one of my uh, prepositions, but here, crucified with Christ. See that? We are with Christ at his crucifixion. We, we died with him. It's amazing, isn't it? Galatians chapter 2. I have been crucified. With Christ. United to him in his death. United with him in his death. Because of our union with Christ, 
Theologians have pointed out that we have been united to the entire person and work of Christ because of united to his death, burial, and resurrection. But more than that, we're also united to his active obedience and passive obedience. When I say active obedience, what does that mean? Everybody knows what that means? When I say active obedience of Christ, that means the things that he did positively in his life. Like when he got baptized, right, by John the Baptist, he told them to do what? Uh, John the Baptist says, you should be baptizing me. I'm not even worthy to untie your sandals, right? But Jesus says what? Do it to fulfill all righteousness. Right? That is his active righteousness, his active obedience. But we're also united to him in his passive obedience. What does that mean? His passive obedience. Anybody? Just shout it out if you know. His passive obedience. What he allowed, so passive, right? You're taking something passively. So maybe I should write this up here, right? There's the active right, and passive obedience of Christ. So the active, that speaks of his life of what? Start to write Greek there, sorry. <laughs> or something like Greek. <laughs> maybe you know what we mean. Is that or no? Passive death. Okay? So. Basically, yeah. So we are united to Christ in what he did for us actively. He lived a perfect life. I mean, you ever wonder why God didn't just send Jesus as a baby to die? Why did he have to live a whole life? He lived a whole life. Why? Why couldn't he just die in infancy? Okay, it's because he had righteousness to fulfill positively in his life. He had to keep the law of God perfectly in our place. But then he also allowed him passively to suffer. He suffered for us. And we're united to him in that suffering. We die with Christ. We're crucified with Christ. And so what he did on the cross as we hung there, he did it with us attached mystically and spiritually to him. It's really mind-boggling, you know? Any questions, comments, or statements? Would Christ's submission to the Father be in the uh, category of active or passive or both? His what now? His submission. Well, that's kind of submission would be cover both. You know? He submitted to God in his life. You know, John chapter 8, I think it's 28. You know, he only do the things that are pleasing to the Father. And then in his, in his death, you know, he definitely did that, you know. But would you say it would be active in the, the economic subordination that he took? Like, sure. more of like the active sense because he's like, we're, we're united in. Well, in the, I mean, I think the Bible teaches only economic subordination. I don't think there is ontological subordination, right? right? And what Josh, what Josh is talking about is, you know, um, the doctrine of subordin divine subordination. So basically the submission that, that Jesus played to the Father, right? So the Father was submitted, subordinate to the Father economically. That just simply means in his position, uh, and the fact that he suffered, and the fact that he obeyed his law, all of these things. Ontologically, uh, uh, ontologically means in his essence or his being. That Jesus is somehow less than the Father ontologically in his being. I don't believe that at all. Right? Obviously, then you wouldn't have the Trinity. So, um, any other questions about that? Should leave it to Josh to t take us deep, right? dive um, yeah that's right and so 
And lastly, as just a couple minutes here, uh, lastly, uh, something that uh, Sarah mentioned, we are also, in, in, the, in the concept of with Christ, we are also united to him in our sanctification. Okay, in our sanctification. We are, th- that's why it says we have, uh, uh, even when we died to sin, we are alive to Christ. We are alive to God in Christ. You see that? We are alive to God in Christ. Romans 6, 11. You're alive to God in Christ. That's how you live now. Galatians 2.20. Not only, he says, have I been crucified with Christ, it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. That's, the, that's that prepositional relationship that I told you about. And that's kind of what it held, right? It was like a dual transaction, right? In uh, Christ. We are in Christ, and Christ is in us. This back and forth, this this exchange that goes on, this transaction, right? Uh, I think I'm using the right term. Um, but that's what Scripture teaches, that our life is now in Christ. He lives in us, through us. Our, our life is now hidden with God in Christ. Okay, Robert Raymond, uh, very good systematic theology, says, Boy, John, you know, you're right. I, I'm pretty partial to Presbyterians. I, I'm noticing that even on my, on my, my quotes here. <laughs> I do quote Grudem, so, you know, I got a Baptist in there. Okay. Uh, but Robert Raymond says, Sin will not reign as king in the life of the Christian who, by virtue of his union with Christ, is dead to sin. Uh, as it, uh, and, excuse me, I messed that up. By virtue of his union in Christ's death to sin, self-consciously knows and seriously regards himself as dead to sin, alive to God in Christ Jesus. And that's just saying, look, a Christian cannot self-consciously, if he understands these things, he cannot self-consciously give himself over to sin anymore. You know, So that sin reigns as king in your life. Right? Uh, before you were a Christian, you drank sin like water, the Bible says. You just drank iniquity. You, no regard to God or to man or to yourself. Or to hell or heaven, right? But now that you're a Christian, the power of sin is broken. There's a break with sin has taken place. Hopefully, there's been a break with the world. Okay, and um, isn't it amazing that after Jesus says, "I took you out of the world," He still leaves you in the world. <laughs> so, what is He talking about? It means being taken out of the world means your identity with the world is over. It's over. You don't run, you know, with the masses and their debauchery. Peter says, enough time has been spent living in the flesh. Enough. You know, it's over. Isn't that beautiful? Now, maybe just some practical observations, okay, about union with Christ. And that is that in our lives, every day, we should be contemplating this idea of union with Christ. We should realize all of the resources that we have in Christ, and we should be looking forward to the day when we will see Christ. I mean, uh, you contemplate every aspect of your salvation because of Christ. And um, man, I just think the more we think about this, and the more we think about this idea of a mystical union, uh, yes, we are not mystics. No, we're not into mysticism, but yes, we should be intimate in our in our communion with Christ. There's nothing wrong with that, okay? Uh, John Murray says that our union with Christ, it's not a, a 
a metallic idea. In other words, it's not just a, a stale, you know, sort of abstract thought out there. It's not just this. We're not Stoics, you know. Uh, as much as what was said at the Strange Fire Conference, <laughs> don't be a Stoic, you know. Let me tell you something. The early church, were, they weren't Stoics. Matter of fact, Paul debated the Stoics. Right? We don't believe in fatalism. Our lives are not to be lived in the tension of fatalism. Everybody knows what that means? Fatalism, you know, okay, sirrah, sirrah. What is, what is, what is, will be? And there's nothing, you know, there's, there's no reason to get excited about anything because everything's already predetermined and prefixed, predestined and blah, blah, blah. Biblical predestination does not work that way. We understand that we are God's means to his sovereign ends. Uh, and and uh, maybe just in, as an example, as a preacher, you know, what kind of, how, how would you plead with souls if you had a fatalistic mentality? You know what I mean? You just couldn't, right? Um, I mean, all the Calvinists that I've read in the old, you know, in, in church history were some of the most passionate preachers on earth. I mean, think of, you know, George Whitfield. I mean, that guy, you know, he was like, he was very Calvinistic, you know, and um, he was one of the most emotional preachers in church history. Would often weep and cry over the people, you know, that type of thing. So emotions, I guess I just went on a whole rant on getting emotional, but uh, just enough to say, look, uh, we're not afraid of feelings. We're not afraid of emotions. You know, the union with Christ should warm our hearts every day. We should be enriched. Our faith should be enriched. Our souls, we should be enriched knowing that we are, that Christ is in us and He is, and, and, and that we're in Him. And, and, and how do you get that fire going? Through the Word of God. That's how. Think of the man on the road to Emmaus, right? Think of those guys. Right? Jesus opened up the Word and their hearts burned. One last comment. It's not, I saw a hand. Josh, is that? No? Any last questions or sh- statements? Man, I wish Sunday school just went on and on and on. You guys are like, I just wish it was over, over, over. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's pray and we'll be dismissed to go to service. <clears throat> well, Father, we do thank you for the, the great mystery of our union with Christ. He is in us and we are in him. And the whole Godhead has been caused to dwell in our hearts through faith. And Lord, these things are wonderful in our eyes. And we pray that they would have a real impact in every single life decision that we make, in every aspect of our lives, in our families, in our homes, in our marriages. Boy, what a picture of Christ in the church. Union with Christ and marriage. Our marriages should be much more theologically informed than they are. And we should take them much more serious than we do. And so give us strength and give us the grace, O God, to apply the doctrine of union with Christ to our hearts. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.